sun is down and the deadlights are out. Welcome to Stay Out of Maine, a Stephen King podcast. I am the Critical Android, and joining me for this episode, I have two guests. One of them, Mr. Dougie Style, who was here on the previous episodes. How are you, Dougie? I'm doing very well today. Very excited to be talking about our next Stephen King project, The Shining. And we also have another Doug, Mr. Doug McCausland. How are you doing, good sir? What's going on? Yeah, this is a very rare experience. You're actually going to get two Dougs in the room at the same time. That's like a very rare event. Not a lot of Dougs just randomly going about around and about the place. I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a Stephen King plot, if you really think about it. Or twinners from different worlds within the uh, Dark Tower multiverse. <laughs> but, and neither of you from Maine. No. I'm glad because, you know, I heard it's a pretty uh, dangerous place of with uh, spooky things and strange occurrences. Except for, for some reason, we're not in Maine for this one. We're actually out in Colorado. This is correct. Very uh, atypical. It's because today we are discussing one of the bigger, bigger novels and more well-known properties from Stephen King in general as we discuss his novel, The Shining. And it's unique in the sense that if there's one thing that people are going to recognize as a Stephen King product, it's probably... It or The Shining. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. But the interesting thing with The Shining in particular is that this is a product that's going to be very closely associated with the movie. Not so much the book in terms of just popular parlance with people. When they hear the name, they're going to think the film and they'll recognize, oh, it's based off of the Stephen King book. But likely they've never read the book but seen the movie. At least today, in today's landscape, that seems to be more of the case. I definitely agree with that. I mean, if you think back at the kind of influence The Shining has had, it, it's huge, but a lot of it comes from the movie. And when you see most TV shows or you see movies in general parody it, it's usually the Stanley Kubrick version they're parodying. The Simpsons one is a perfect example of that. But even episodes of like Rocco's Modern Life and Psych, they're basically copying Stanley Kubrick movie, not the book. Yeah. Ready Player One, the film that recently came out, the book, <laughs> the book version of that, they made no reference to The Shining, but the film version goes right for the movie again. The novel version of Ready Player One actually has a very extensive Blade Runner sequence in place of The Shining sequence that's in the film. And that was included in the film because, you know, obviously Steven Spielberg's got friends of Kubrick. And it's funny because they make reference to the fact in the film that um, King hated Kubrick's adaptation of the movie because it was so different from the book. And that's something that we're going to touch on briefly, but we do want to focus primarily on the book. And there'll be a separate podcast that discusses both the 1980 film and the uh, 1997 miniseries. But that'll be for another podcast for another day. Right now, primarily focused on the novel. And one of the important things to know going into this is that first it was created in 1977, and it was done so at the height of King's battles with alcoholism. A lot of his struggles were incorporated into this story, which is an important thing to understand because alcoholism plays a very large part in the character of Jack, which, again, we'll discuss more as we go into it. For the basic plot, if you've seen the movie, the basics are there, at least. Jack Torrance is a, is a writer who's struggling and is given an opportunity to be a winter caretaker for a very classy hotel that is up in the Colorado mountains in the Rockies. And it's kind of tucked away to the point where when winter comes, bad things happen in, in sense of it being completely snowed in. 
no getting to or from it, which is why they need a winter caretaker there to really make sure things are maintained because nobody else is going to be able to make that trek there. And bad things happen in this hotel, and we'll discuss what those bad things are. Going off of the idea that King was not very happy with this film, one of the reasons for that was because of how Jack is played differently in the film than from the book. And I think it's very important to discuss who Jack Torrance is in the light of in light of this novel. And to start, I'm going to say that I think King does a remarkable job in taking this man who is very troubled. He's got anger problems. He's obviously got his alcohol issues. But there's something that King does in writing him that makes him somewhat redeemable and likable despite these issues. And Dougie Style, why don't you give your reflections on that, whether you agree, disagree, and what stands out about Jack's character to you? Well, I think to start off, when we talked about Salem's lot, we uh, discussed how Ben Mears in a lot of ways was a stand-in for Stephen King. But he was much more of an idealized version of King, just a kind of everyman writer who did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. But then now we've got another writer, but this time it's a very, very different characterization. And I think you're right. I think a lot of it's reflecting on King, but that also shows how brave of a writer he is, that he was able to tackle these kind of inner demons that he had within him with this story and with Jack's character. And I think what really stood out for me after reading this book, as well as Salem's Lot, is realizing just how good King is with character and that he writes horror for adults. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. I think a lot of horror sometimes just goes for shock value or gore, or they have a message they want to preach. But with King, it always starts with the characters and it builds off of from there. Really, Jack has all these inner demons and issues before we even get to the hotel. And that's what he's most afraid of, is those things coming out, whether it's his alcoholism or his rage and his anger. King does such a good job really sucking you in. But yet, if I had read this book like 15, 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have gotten as much out of it because I wouldn't have been able to relate as much to what Jack is going through now. To be fair, I've never been an alcoholic and I've never been an abuser, but I know people who have been through these situations. And as you get older, you understand why people fall into these situations more and more. That is really a real hallmark of this story and his writing, that he is basically talking about complex adult emotions. And that's where he starts the story from. The horror comes later. But even from the beginning, Jack, like you said, has a lot of issues. And yet King does a good job making you feel for him. But not just for him, but for also the other characters, too. He really takes you inside all of their minds and lets you know what they're thinking, why they do what they do. And I think King even makes kind of a meta commentary on that later when Jack is trying to write his play and he realizes he doesn't like any of his characters anymore. And that's when he kind of goes to the dark side. King is showing that no matter how bad a character is, you can find something redeeming about him. And if you can't find something redeeming, then there's not a story worth telling. Doug, how do you feel? I've heard that King has said of Kubrick that Kubrick thinks too much and feels too little. Hmm. And critics of King's work that preferred the Kubrick version of the story would say King's the exact opposite. He feels too much and thinks too little. I think there's a definitely more interesting character arc to Jack in the book over the film version. Obviously more fleshed out. We go so much into his troubled backstory you know, more explicitly into how alcohol factors into his struggles. You know, incredible book. I just read this a few weeks ago. <laughs> I think we're all new to this book here. 
correct? Yes. 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 For years, I was actually reluctant because I'm a I'm a big King fan. For years, I was reluctant to read this book because I've seen the film version so many times, and I just thought, okay, I've heard mixed things about the novel, and I just kind of pushed it off for years. You know, I've been through a lot this year. Um, just being candid here, struggling with uh, my own personal demons and reading this book. It's such an emotional thing. As far as Jack's character in the novel, it makes it more explicitly clear that it almost treats alcoholism as separate from his own character in a weird sort of way. Because his actions on alcohol abuse and his struggle with sobriety, yet at the same time, he's more explicitly clear than in the film version that it's due to ghosts. Right. <laughs> so yes. it's the, so that's very muddy. It's, I think it's actually a little more muddied and ambiguous than the film, which is sort of funny because the film sort of makes it clear that he's been deranged from the start. <laughs> you know, as soon as he walks into the overlook and he's talking with Ullman, you know, you could just tell us something's just totally off about him. He's more of a, a tragic hero in the novel where he comes in, he's trying to change his life around for the better. He, he's more relatable, likable from the start, even though he's a little bit of a pretentious dude in the beginning. He's kind of just internally like judging Ullman, which we don't actually get to see in the film. He calls him like prissy. and does not like the guy in general. But then again, he just seems to come across as... I think maybe that's the desperation of Jack at that point in time. Like, he needs a job, and he's not happy to be having to take charity work from his friend Al. But here he is, he's confronted with the situation, and he's under this constant pressure to succeed for the sake of his family and for himself. So we've already got Jack under a bunch of strain. And it's kind of weird in that sense, because Jack is almost kind of part and parcel with the boiler. The boiler system is almost like a metaphor for Jack. He just keeps building inside, and he's just going to explode at some point. <laughs> exactly, and and he can't control it. It's always creeping up, creeping up all the time. And it, it vents every now and then and goes back down, but it's constantly simmering. And just as we find out from the start, the boiler is always off. It has been for years. Jack's been off for years. And like you're saying, we see that in his attitude very early on when he's even just interviewing for this job. It's more than just the alcoholism. I think King does a good job really showing how all these past events have led him to this moment. He had a father that was abusive, that abused his own mother constantly. And that made him suppress his own anger, which became unhealthy over time. And then he's now had an anger management issue. And then you threw alcohol into it. And that just became a toxic mix on top of everything else. That is what really makes King such a good writer is people just don't act the way they are because that's how they are. There's a, there's a whole set of reasons. People are the way they are because of a different set of experiences that yeah. they've accumulated over their whole lifetime. And you really get that with Jack's character, much more so than someone like Ben Mears in Salem's Lot. He's a very multifaceted character. I do agree with that. And like you said, it's just a combination of different experiences. When you're talking about what King does for writing, the idea that we see Jack in his past developing these leading up to the moments that we're at now, whether it be the flashbacks with his dad or this kind of unreliable narrator status that we have in a sense, because there's these moments early on. We suddenly find out things may not have been exactly what they should have been. For instance, there's a large part of Jack's problems developed from when he was at school as a teacher, and he took out his anger and resentment on one of the students. The name of who I'm trying to remember here at the moment, but it's escaping me. The kid on the debate team. George Hatfield. 
there's a part where he's describing how when uh, when he was vetting George for the debate team, George was stuttering all the time. Jack you know, confronted him about it. We can't have you on the team. And George was going, you set the timer ahead. You set the timer ahead. And Jack's going, I did not. I didn't do that at all. I was sure I didn't touch. But then he starts questioning himself. And then by the time we're done with this part of the story, Jack's saying, I only said it ahead a minute at the most just to put him out of his misery. Uh, so even though Jack's not technically a narrator of this story, he's unreliable in his memories, not just with that, but also going back to discussing breaking Danny's arm, which in the movie it's a dislocation, but here it's a, it's a, he actually breaks his arm. And he says that he meant to do it as punishment. He was so filled with rage that he actually did mean to break it. But up until that point in the book... He's been denying that the entire time was an accident. He just meant to take him and spank him. But now, he admits to it later on that he did forcefully want to grab Danny to teach him a lesson. And if breaking the arm was going to happen, it happened. He just didn't care. So we, right. we we do have Jack being this this tortured guy who's so filled with these issues. You you do have to look at this book in a way that is it's scary on a different level. Whereas we also have these very adult-based fears of abuse, whether it be from father to, to son, to a husband, to a wife, and the idea of losing control of oneself, it, it's a very kind of mature fear that most people are not going to relate to necessarily. But if you do have personal issues, if you've been through this, this is not a very easy read at times. No. Jack's character, too, a lot of it comes down to self-worth. In a lot of ways, he feels like he's not worth anything. And I think that's also why he doesn't like the boss who's interviewing him at the Overlook Hotel, because it keeps making him feel worthless the whole time. And like I said, I've never had alcoholism, but I've dealt with some issues. And I've I've dealt with my own depression and stuff. And a lot of that had to do with health. And a lot of that does, you could just go inside your head and you just feel like you're worthless and you're not good enough. And it will come out at times in really unhealthy ways. And I think that that's really what Jack's character represents for King and for the book in general is he is a real person with real problems, but he's not above redemption. He also could succumb to some real evil push come to shove, which we're going to see. <laughs> and his own like you know treatment of himself and how he views himself, his thoughts were almost like of an obsessive compulsive nature, I think, where it's like, oh, did I mean to break my son's arm? You know, I had a dream that I'm going to kill my family. Does it doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. He's just always constantly, like, doubting himself and has all these really dark thoughts that creep in there. No help from the alcohol either. It's easy to see where, as the story develops, how this Jack is very much a vessel for the evil that's in this hotel to be able to take control over him and utilize him. Since that's what Jack turns into at the end. And this, this is something that the the book does exceedingly well, is that by the end of this, Jack is almost essentially a reanimated corpse. He mutilates his own face. <laughs> exactly, that too. Like, at, at this point in time, he's been stabbed to death, essentially. And the only reason he's going on is that the hotel has basically taken over him and, and is using him as a shambling corpse to get done what needs to be done. And... Like you said, he destroys his face with, with uh, the rope mallet. That's how bad it is. And his face is like twisting into these forms of the past caretakers and past people who have been embodied in this hotel. To hear it described in the book, 
is a different kind of terror in the sense of knowing that this place, this hotel, is not just something that's paranormally haunted. It is a living entity unto itself that is trying to accomplish something. We don't know what, but it needs Danny for it. And it is capable of taking somebody who's susceptible and twisting them into an abomination of a creature that's that's the reanimated dead. Like, that's what it gets to by the time this story is over. And poor Jack, all he can do is that one last bit of redemption of trying to stop himself long enough to tell Danny that he loves him and that he needs to run away. That's the level that it gets to, and that's amazing. In Salem's Lot, there was a lot of emphasis placed on the Marsden house being a source of evil, but it was never really played up. The evil was pushed onto the characters, particularly Barlow and Straker. But King kept hinting at the fact that the house was some sort of evil unto itself. Like, it channeled it and harnessed it. There was something about it. This is very common throughout all of his books. You got Talisman, Haunted House from the Wastelands, uh, the source of unexplained evil. You know, I feel like uh, a giant king trope is just sort of vague locations that are somehow like haunted by the past, have a, a sense of darkness lurking underneath. Yeah, and this is the first time in his in the chronology that that's really hitting hard here, that the house itself is evil and that there's some sort of entity that has gone beyond just the realm of haunting it. It's created it into its own kind of living evil. Dougie, your thoughts? I definitely agree with everything you said. And, I, you know, the real tragedy, the real horror of the story is that Jack Torrance loses his humanity piece by piece as the book proceeds. Like you said, he's dead before he's dead. He loses his sense of self and who he is. And that's really the biggest terror of all. And that's also what marks this as very different from Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot was about the death of a town. You know, that, that was about a town that was slowly being corrupted while nobody was paying attention besides a select few people. And that was a story that had a huge sprawling cast, which we talked about, which is what made it so great. But here, King, he does the opposite. He really narrows in on just 3.5 characters and really gets inside their head. And it's really all about them. And the hotel is catalyst for their journeys as characters. Yeah, I think that it is more explicit here than it was in Salem's Lot in terms of the hotel being evil and being a source of evil where in Salem's lot, the Marston house just seemed to attract people who were evil. The overlook hotel is evil in a way that it corrupts people. It turns people evil. It is the source of evil. And it does a good job in the book, really making you question for such a long time. If this place is evil though, I mean, a lot of shady stuff's happened in the past in, in the overlook hotel, but King does a good job making you second guess how much this is Jack or even Danny thinking something's happening when it's really not, or if something's really happening and they're just denying it to themselves. I mean, it's a really good way to keep the reader questioning what's happening, but also let you know what the character's thought processes are the whole time and let you see how Jack is slowly being turned by the hotel and how Danny is slowly waking up to the fact that they have to leave the hotel. The hotel is an evil place. It's haunted. You know, I think there's no question about that whatsoever. No, no very clearly. <laughs> very clearly. Even though the movie does more of a, you know, job of making it ambiguous, I think. But the key here is Danny's presence. It's almost compared to clockwork, like an inactive clock. You know, this evil presence is there. It's just blind dormant, like, you know, kind of a dead battery. And Danny almost acts as sort of 
a battery for it because of his shining ability. Just his presence there amplifies and makes demons there more malevolent and powerful. And that's ultimately what allows this whole plot to take place. Yeah, it's unique in the sense that it's almost parasitic what it's trying to do. And if, if it feeds off Danny and is able to capture that essence and make him part of the hotel... Uh, spiritually, physically, whatever. Yeah. What this thing could possibly do, we, we don't know. It's just this, because it's never, we've never experienced anybody as powerful as Danny before with this shine, as Dick points out too, uh, Dick Halloran. D- Danny is far away, far and away, the most, one of the most powerful telekinetic presences that he could possibly come across. And the hotel wants that. What are your guys' thoughts on Danny as a character, as opposed to Jack's? Because I think Jack is our tragic hero, but I think Danny ends up being kind of the real hero of, of the story. Yeah, Danny's definitely the protagonist of the book. Jack's more the anti-hero slash antagonist. Danny, he's incredibly smart for his age. I thought he was a little too smart, to be honest. I was thinking the whole time, wow, a five-year-old is saying this crap? But uh, (laughs) Danny is the emotional crux of the book, because without him, we'd have no real drama with Jack, in my opinion. And obviously, he goes on to star in his own sequel novel, but that'll be another time. His character arc is that of, he's just really confused, I think. He's going through a time in his life where, I think he used to have like a better relationship with his dad. Now he's just sort of questioning everything. He finds a new father figure, and Dick Holleran, he's sort of the surrogate, you know, after he sort of senses that his family is deteriorating. There's one point where he reveals that he knew his parents were considering a divorce, even though neither of them were like saying it out loud. That's really sad. Maybe we could talk about the dynamics of like, you know, the family itself and how like shining ability like has influenced the relationship between Wendy and Jack. It's a very interesting point because we have the gradual evolution of the beliefs of Wendy, specifically Wendy. And Jack is kind of there too, but the influence of the hotel is kind of stopping it from fully realizing it. Wendy fully understands that her son has psychic abilities and is incredibly special in that sense. And she becomes weary of it knowing, like, all of a sudden, oh my god, my son could pick up everything that I'm thinking. What is this doing to our relationship? How how am I a mother to this child? All this stuff. And if Jack wasn't being partially possessed by the hotel at this point in time... He'd be fully under that impression, too, but he's just trying to fight off parts of it because a hotel needs Jack to be able to do what it needs to do, and it, it can't have him fully understanding what, what Danny is capable of. The idea that this, again, this goes to the more adult fears of the sense of you try to protect your children from the problems that you have in a marriage. A lot of people, you hear it all the time, people stay in a marriage because of the kids, you don't try to let on to your children that things are as bad as they are. And then all of a sudden, imagine if you were in that kind of a a relationship and your kid was fully aware of all of it. And they have that looming over their heads, especially Wendy, because she's the one who's actually fully in control of her mind. And it does change the dynamic, because originally when we started this journey, she was worried about losing her son and the connection that she had to him to her husband. And that's almost, a, at times it is a source of strain between her and Jack, because whenever anything's happening, Danny runs to his dad, and she feels completely sidelined by it. But as things progress and they start losing, or Jack starts losing himself to the hotel, the bond between Wendy and Danny gets a bit stronger. And it's sad for Danny because he wants to love his dad, but he's losing his dad, and he's so aware of what's going on that he even has to come to the conclusion that that's not my dad. 
And that's the breaking point towards the end of it, too, when he fully realizes, you're not my dad anymore. And how terrible is that? Just not just a character level, but again, trying to relate this to real life of being a kid and, and knowing that your your father is not who you think it is. And that's something that happens to kids and teenagers as we grow up. We, we realize our parents are, are completely fallible, that they're mistake-ridden people who make terrible decisions at times and who are not perfect. But throughout our childhood, we cling to the fact that our parents are the best things in the world. And poor Danny has to face this realization at five years old. And even the doctor, when he was uh, being interviewed about or interviewing Danny about what happened, Danny glossed over the fact that Daddy hurt him. He wasn't concerned about that at all. He was more concerned about his parents' marriage. Because again, idolize your parents, and Danny's entire world is being ripped out from under him. Which, as you were saying, Doug, makes Danny have that kind of character arc of being the protagonist because of everything that he's having to overcome. Jack's not overcoming anything. Jack is being overcome. Danny's the one who has to go and climb these hurdles. I think that's the only reason why Kang has made him a bit smarter than what he should be. Because if Danny wasn't this precocious and wasn't this intelligent, uh, you wouldn't have that arc be successful. So we have to exchange a bit of the realism in his characterization for the fact of make uh, if it's not, then the story's not going to work as effectively. But it's just staggering to to think about it of what this kid is going through on an emotional level that if you, I, whoever, had to try to face this as a five-year-old, hell, people can't deal with this shit as a teenager, uh, the things that Danny's going through. That's the true horror of this book, is putting yourselves in the position of these people and seeing what they're going through. I want to talk a little bit more about Wendy, too. Don't want to jump too much into the Kubrick film, but, you know, as someone who'd only seen the Kubrick film and then read the book, I mean, Wendy is like a revelation in this book compared to the movie. (laughs) I mean, there's not much of a character in the movie at all. And again, that's part of that is not really Shelley Duvall's fault as much as that's Kubrick's fault. And that's a whole other can of worms. But here we really get a look inside a really interesting woman, just character who is in a failing marriage, but doesn't know how to leave it. And we really get to learn a lot about her, how she also comes from a broken home, just like Jack. Even though she was never beaten, her mom verbally abuses her all the time, makes her feel worthless and that she's a failure and that you know she married the wrong guy and that she can't do anything right. And she even talks about how if she ever goes over to her mother's, her mom will always show her up and how to take care of Danny. Like, this is how you take care of Danny. This is how you dress him. This is how you clean diapers. This is what you should feed him. And because of that, that constant barrage from her mother is what keeps her in this relationship that she knows is unhealthy right she doesn't right know right. where else to go and also this is the 70s you know feminism is really only you know in its first wave still she didn't finish going to college or get a higher education either wendy's options are limited they're just as limited as jack's are and so that's why she even though she knows that this isn't working and that them going to the hotel probably isn't a good idea she doesn't see what other choice she has and she's also afraid of losing Danny to Jack because it's obvious from the beginning of the book that even though he loves his mom, he has a special relationship with Jack that she can't seem to ever get in between. She tries to constantly and she can't. Even when the horror starts at the Overlook Hotel, he's always running to Jack. He, she, Danny's not running to his mom and that kills her that that's happening constantly. So what are your thoughts on Wendy? Part of it too, uh, she's stuck in this relationship because 
she doesn't want to prove her mother right. And it's almost like a sense of pride. Not, it's not a bad thing. I totally empathize with her. But she just doesn't want to kind of run back to her mom and just kind of say, yeah, you were right. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I need you to, you know, help me take care of Danny. I agree with that. I think in general, though, I think part of it is the pride. And part of it is she just doesn't have many options. Like as a single mom in the 70s, she would have probably a hard time trying to raise Danny by herself, especially without you know, an education at that point. I think she just graduated high school, right? She never went to college, correct? Or did she finish? It was kind of unclear about that. Yeah, I don't remember, honestly. Don't know. They make reference to the fact that she did take a job working at the same location as Jack was as a typist. Right. Uh, So she was doing that. But that's not a very uh, skilled position. Right. So I, I don't think she had anything big beyond that. To me, there's an issue here, too, more of she wants to believe that Jack is a good person because at heart he is, but he hasn't gotten bad enough to where, at least to her, to where leaving him is a completely viable option since he's he has tried to improve. He quit drinking, and as we see in in this uh, book, he's he's been sober for months, and his behavior has changed. Because of the incident that happened with him and Al hitting that bicycle. And the fact that if there was a kid there, they would have killed a freaking kid. But somehow, that woke them both up. And she did notice a legitimate change in her husband. And he's been following through on it. So at this point in time, at least, to give Jack a bit of credit here and to give Wendy some credit for why she's made the decision that she has, Jack has changed. It's just unfortunate that as we're going to find out the she, she she mentions it you might not be drinking but all your habits have returned right and that's Oof. that scares her yeah. and it, it goes to show what you know exactly what she thinks of her husband where she's been suspicious of him i guess you can tie this into the kind of that early feminism too of trying to stand for herself she is looking for a reason to break away from jack because she did give him that one last chance he has been improving but she is constantly wary of him, and that's a strain on the relationship for her because she's always worried that she's going to have to leave because she's not going to take any more shit. That's like this very firmly established that she's not going to take any more because she's ready to up and leave at any point in time. That pressure is also putting Jack into a deeper and deeper sense of depression. I mean, I think that's a really good point, too, is that Jack does just enough to keep her around. Yeah, at the same time, she's always going to go to the worst possible explanation when anything happens. And she's going to jump down Jack's throat about it. And that doesn't make Jack feel good. And that makes it even worse. And you see that constantly that they kind of have this toxic relationship going on, even without the alcohol anymore, where she's just silently judging him all the time. And he knows it. And it's making him feel more worthless. And, but he tries to do just enough to keep her still there. And again, Danny's also the thing that's gluing them together because he does not want them to divorce. And even they kind of know that he knows. They don't know how he knows. They know that he gives them these looks when they're thinking about it and it makes them feel guilty immediately. That's something that Wendy brings up a lot. Danny would just stare at her when she would think bad things about Jack and that would make her feel really terrible so then she'd shut it down and she knows that jack isn't good for them deep down or at least like you know that's her impression and she's always looking for that aha moment you know just to like have an excuse to pick up and leave but the thing is like you know you said i don't think jack's 
actually done anything yet that horrible. And I think the the act of packing up and leaving with Danny would be more traumatic to him than anything that Jack has done to him, you know, at this point in time. Yeah, because the, they also make it a point that the arm breaking was an isolated incident that was brought on by Jack's lack of control. Right. And he hasn't repeated any actions, and he's never hit Wendy up until this point either. She she doesn't fully understand the rage issues that he has, and Jack doesn't even fully understand them either. He doesn't understand where they come from. Obviously, they come from his father, uh, but we see that as the, as the audience or the reader. But Jack is not fully in control of himself, and he's constantly in the sense of denial about his past and who he is, probably because he doesn't want to admit how much like his father he actually is. But God damn it, if the hotel doesn't draw that out of him. Oh, and, and that goes to another theme, too. Jack is kind of denying the fact that he's like his father. And Wendy's greatest fear is being more like her mother. Th- that's something that gets hinted at whenever Jack... If Jack says something about how she's like her mother, that's like the berserk button right there. That's the button you don't press, because Wendy's <laughs> Wendy ain't going to take that shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's definitely the quickest way to piss her off, is to bring up her mom. <laughs> yeah, like you said, you're being like your mother right now. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> that was not a good thing to say. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be murdered uh, in real life if I ever said that to uh, <laughs> any of my girlfriends. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, there's this idea, this doesn't tie into, the, well, it ties into the book, but it's uh, something that's kind of said in terms of psych- psychology is that a lot of women spend time trying to differentiate themselves from their mother because it helps them create their own identity. Pardon the interruption, but during the course of recording this, I received a phone call from one of my younger brothers. Call didn't matter at all, but it did throw us completely off topic for a while as we were discussing where I live, things like that. We eventually got back on topic, and we pick up at about, well, this point here. The hotel, the Overlook, was inspired by uh, the one. What was it called in real life in Colorado? It was a. Uh... Well, it's where they filmed the miniseries, right? It, it, the, the, yeah. where they filmed the interior shots of the miniseries. What, what the, it's the hotel what, that inspired the book. What the hell is it called? Like, I, like I, I've known this. I just can't think of it right now. While I'm on the Shining podcast, of course. But <laughs> you like that's the real influence for the, the hotel, as far as I know. I don't know if you ever like heard New Paltz before, New York. There's a place there called Mohunk Mountain House, and Stephen King actually is a regular there. Somebody I know's father like used to work there, like front desk, and Stephen King would come in like every single summer. It was actually featured in like the epilogue for uh, the regulators. Actually, it was written from a postcard from Mohunk Mountain House. This place is like 20 minutes from my house. Everyone is convinced, but Stanley Hotel—that's what it's called, Stanley Hotel yes, in yes, Colorado. Stanley. But so the Stanley Hotel is like king's like vocal influence but everyone in my area just loves to say and are just convinced that the real overlook is actually the mountain mountain house it's it's a pretty <laughs> cool place like you know it, it looks just like it like it's 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 freaking huge it has a hedge maze and i know the hedge maze wasn't in the book so that's that, that that's pretty much relevant everyone's just always like oh you know it's the real hedge maze that you know inspired the the part in uh, the shining they never read the novel <laughs> the, the, the novel with the animals the, 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 the hedge animals yeah could we just talk about the hedge animals now while we're at yeah. it yeah let's, 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 let's well jump into it let's, 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 we've been talking about like depression and like you know deterioration of family and like all this other like depressing <laughs> stuff and let's Talk about haunted hedge animals for a second. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty much how they are. We have this deep psychological story going on with some ghostly overtones, and then all of a sudden, look out! 
there's angry head. <laughs> like yeah. I was reading this book, and for some reason, every single time the hedge animals came out in my head, it always looked like one of those full motion videos from like the PlayStation One era of like Resident <laughs> Evil, or like it's just these like really just slowly moving like animated like you know freaking hedge animals walking around, and there's just like <laughs> Danny and Jack going, they just like cuss the black. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of funny how. He says they don't move when you're looking at them, and I don't know if either of you guys have been that into Doctor Who, but that is exactly the the story and the premise behind the Weeping Angel monsters, who when you look at them, they don't move, and when you look away, they come after you. But it's done so much more creepy in that, and every time the hedge animals come into play here, it's like, oh, you mean our characters are going to get tackled by a a shrub? Uh, (laughs) Is that such a... A terrible thing. <laughs> I mean, and it's funny because he has to keep them up. He has to he has to trim them as well. And I'm just thinking, well, what if he didn't trim them? Would they stop being hedge animals? That could be. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Would that be I the used... way to defeating them? Is to not clip the head? I used to be a I used to be a hedge animal till I got overgrown, and now it's uh, I'm just a square. No, I'm just a fat square that just <laughs> part of that whole hedge nonsense is when Danny's actually in the concrete tube and he feels a presence. And that, oh, yeah. Because that's not the hedge animals. It's something else. And that is the most by far creepier than any of the hedge animals. That moment where he's in the concrete tube and he thinks that there's somebody in there with him. Yeah, I think when it comes to the animals themselves, the creepiest they were used is not when they were attacking somebody, but when they were described as being lined up outside guarding the entrance to the place. Mm-hmm. Like the hotel has now wanted to keep them in there so badly that the hedges have moved to literally close them in. Uh, And the description of, like, the lion stalking as a guard animal was that that description of their presence there is far scarier than the the description (laughs) of how they've attacked somebody. And just trying to think of of this logically as well, yeah, I mean, if if they did get swiped by the the shrub, they'd probably get a splinter. And I imagine that would hurt. It'd be irritating. But yeah, again, when 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 Dick is fighting them, trying to get into the hotel, and it's like throwing gasoline on them, it's like ah, that's that'll learn you. You're lying. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously, I'm not as scared of these hedge animals as I am of the trees from Evil Dead. I mean, that tree wasn't messing around. You kind of have to tip your hat to Kubrick, who tried to make it work and was like, no. Stephen King, I love him with all my heart. He's just silly sometimes. And like (laughs) I just want to bring up one other part in the book that just really like I was like, okay, what the hell? So there's a part later on, it's probably like halfway or like three quarters of the way through the novel, and they're all in an argument. I think it's actually right after the whole like room two thirty seven or whatever number it is in the books, you know, that sequence 217 217. in the book 237 yeah 217 you know it's 237 because the moon is 237 miles away from earth no i said it's 238 but that's besides the point but there's uh arguing and they're in the bedroom and then they hear the elevator like going off and i'm just like oh man this is it the elevator of blood and like it just keeps building up and building up and building up and I'm just like, oh, man, you know, this, this is like, you know, one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then the elevator opens and, like, fucking confetti flies out. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. 
like that is a. Uh, it, it, it made me it made me think of like it and like I don't know if you guys ever seen like the nostalgic critic review of the it miniseries. Yes, where, I have. Like the balloons, it's like balloons aren't scary. Balloons are not <laughs> scary. Like what? Like what is it with Stephen King and like party decorations? <laughs> so like he has haunted balloons. He's like haunted confetti in this one. He must you know, had a really traumatizing birthday one year. I mean, that we maybe we don't know. That <laughs> really just scarred him for life. So balloons and confetti and streamers are just like the scariest things ever. Steven, what happened at Timmy's birthday party? I don't talk about it. It was a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when she crawls into the elevator and she's like trying to usurp Jack at this point in time. Like Wendy is determined to show that Jack is full of shit and he's been hiding things. So she crawls into the elevator and we hear. You know, it's the description of how tense it is. Her face just like contorts as she sees something and says, Jack, then what is this? And what does she throw down? A um, party mask. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, really? I thought there was going to be like a part of a corpse in there or something. <laughs> like, or, or like evidence of the fact that the elevator crashed with like 50 guests on it because they overloaded the elevator. It's like, this is why it's haunted, Jack. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they kind of build up the elevator. As if, you know, it doesn't work so well. It's kind of creaky. You think, like, someone's going to get stuck on it later or something. But, yeah, the worst the elevator throws at us is, is, is a bunch of decorations from Party City. So In the miniseries, Danny even puts on the mask. It's like, I want to wear the mask. It's like, You're killing the scene here, kid. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, You're not the, making this any scarier. The caretaker and all the ghosts of the Overlook, they're all just misunderstood. You know, they just want to throw Danny, like, a really nice birthday party. That's it. Yeah, that's what it was. Jack's not letting it happen. They're just really mad at him over that. That's that's, that's the actual plot. Yeah, it was supposed to be a Disney resort where they were having New Year's every day, and then something stopped it from happening, and now they just really want to continue with that whole theme. That's all <laughs> it was. But, you know, at the same time, I think it would have been creepier, because they mentioned uh, Wendy, I think it was Wendy, who was having this vision as it's growing more powerful, where she's, she's seeing the parties happening, and she's hearing the music, and she's able to picture in her mind the overloaded elevator carrying all these drunk and happy guests. And I'm thinking, you know, if we really want to up the ante here about how haunted this place is, that elevator should have fucking crashed. All those people should be dead. And we've got a bunch of dead people up in the ballroom who died because of that shit. That would up your ante right there if you're going to go with the whole elevator thing. <laughs> but let's talk about something that does work that's super scary. Uh, since we've already mentioned it in passing, let's talk about room 217. Yes. Oh, man. Okay, now, before... I, I, I want to jump in here fast and say something about hotels in general. About how one of the things that this really does capture is that you would think that at some point in time, King had worked in a hotel. And as you know, Dougie, from working in hotels, too. Yep. These buildings <laughs> do have stories. Yeah. And they do have legacies. And when things happen in a room... Like, I remember the time we had a person dropped out of a, of a stroke in a room. They were traveling with a business partner and the business partner was like just traumatically affected by this the person who was working the night shift with uh, as the lead clerk along with our supervisor. We're sitting in the back room thinking, how, how do we handle this? And my thought is, well, do we charge him for the room? It's, it's dark. It was dark humor, but it was my only way of like kind of coping with the fact that that room is now going to be forever marked with the presence Somebody died in that room. Well, I used to work at the Warburton Park Marriott, which has been around since the early 1900s. Again, it's a hotel that had a ton of history. So many presidents used to not only stay there, but actually live there part-time too throughout the years. And the older part portion of it 
um, which really goes back and they hadn't really renovated until recently. There was a room that everyone said was haunted, that there was someone that her spirit still lived in that room and that some of the housekeepers even had friendly relations with, with this spirit, that they would talk to her. Like people had gone in there to do room inspections one night and the, all the lights would go out in the room out of nowhere. And so, yeah, I am well aware of that. And of course, superstitions too, just that hotels never have 13 floors. We never name a room with 13 because apparently that's bad luck. I don't know, Doug, your experience, if you have anything like that, that you've uh, gone with hotels before. Uh, not hotels, but I've just seen way too many just weird shit. <laughs> like I can't, <laughs> that could be an entire podcast of its own. Now, as far as local, like I said, the Mohawk Mountain House, which I mentioned before, that's supposed to be haunted. I've been there. It's, it's a nice place. It costs like $2,500 a night to stay there or something like that. It's, it's absolutely insane. But I've heard lots of stories about that place. That's local. But hotels, nah. Stephen King just has like a weird, like not weird. You know, it's actually you know pretty cool. It's a he has a fascination with big hotels. I don't know if you guys know the story of how The Shining was inspired. I don't fully know. Even if I don't, the audience might not. So go ahead, go into it. Pretty much, he was driving with his wife through Colorado, and then he saw the Stanley, and it was actually the last night because they had an off season, just like the Overlook. So he checked in there. And he said that, like, they were serving him dinner. They were, like, the only people there, you know, him and his wife. They were, like, packing up, and they're just in this massive, like, dining room, uh, you know, being served food. And he's like, wow, this is just really, like, just, like, creepy. It was an old hotel, and he saw, uh, was it in the book? It's like a, I think it's a fire extinguisher, where, but it's hose, yes. and it turns into a snake and uh, attacks Danny. That was actually something that he saw there, and uh, he just thought, okay. You know, this is a good setup for a novel. I'm going to write a book about, you know, the caretaker of the off-season hotel because I can't picture staying in here for like five months. <laughs> hedge maze actually does not exist at the Stanley. That was made up for the movie and the, the hedge animals. There's no haunted hedge animals in my oh, life. I wish there were. But... I was looking so forward <laughs> to them. Especially the rabbit, who apparently all that hedge animal did was just like poke his head up. It's like, you guys guys going on the attack again? Can I watch? <laughs> oh boy, those hedge animals! Like besides, even if the even if the rabbit did attack, like how bad would that be to like see your obituary? Jack Torrance died. He was attacked by a living hedge animal in the form of a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Mistook him for a carrot. It gnawed through both of his Achilles tendons, and uh, he bled out <laughs> on the ground. Oh, all right. Well. <laughs> Not to get back into that topic again, <laughs> but like that scene later, that scene later. I mean, this is a fascinating topic, <laughs> but like that that scene later on where like the Dick is like coming in on the snowmobile and he gets like attacked by a lion. And it's just so dramatic. Like he's just getting the shit kicked out of him by like a bush, pretty much. And he's being thrown around. He's just like, oh, and he's just like thinking like, oh god, I'm gonna die. And, like he's being. I, I I don't even think they show him getting out of that situation. I think they just kind of drop it. Like it's just, he's just like, oh yeah, I fought it off, and he like comes into the hotel just like completely like bloodied and bruised up <laughs> dick what happened to you i got in a fight with a shrub <laughs> oh really you know jack's trying to murder us but you know if you're having a fighting on shrubbery then maybe we need someone else i've been being beaten for the last 15 minutes with a rope mallet dick i have broken ribs <laughs> every time i breathe my bones are poking into my lungs dick but let's stop everything because you were attacked by a hedge animal <laughs> in the form of a rabbit or a baby <laughs> It was a lion, Wendy. It was a lion. Yeah, sure it was, Dick. Just go up there and save my fucking son. But anyway, yeah, Dick warns Danny about this room, and Danny's just like, fuck it. 
But in, in fairness, the, the hotel was very much trying to compel Danny to open this door. Like like we said, certain rooms have certain histories, and this one apparently has quite quite a big one. There, there's a lady in the tub, and the lady wants Danny, and uh, she she gets him too. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, the biggest horror of the scene is, is the dead woman. But I actually found when Jack went in even creepier because he goes in and he sees nothing at first. He's just thinking Danny's just full of it. He's just trying to, you know, get out of being in trouble for entering this room when he knows he shouldn't go into any of the rooms. And I like how he's going. And then he hears the curtains and he turns and he sees a shadow of somebody in there. And he's just, he, he does the smart thing. He says, I'm getting out of here immediately. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm not going to be that guy that goes in and looks. So he runs out, locks it. This is my, probably my favorite part of the book in terms of scares. He locks it. He then hears something thump really quickly onto the floor, scramble and race up to the door and jiggle the door really quickly. While you basically hear the wind howling in the background. And I felt like that was such a creepy primal moment because I feel like I've had those dreams or nightmares where you hear something from another room and it just races up and is trying to get through something. That's a good example of really not showing something fully and it becomes even creepier. There was something in there that was luring him, but because he got away, all of a sudden it panicked and tried to race to the door. But it kind of says that even if he's locked it in, it's pretty much too late. That like At this point, it wants to greet the whole family now. Now it knows they're there, and it, it definitely wants to make its presence known. I think he hears her like feet like dripping on the carpet, like she's like yeah. from like the bat. Uh, the the whole scene actually reminded me of it's a Stephen King movie, not not based on his books, but the skit from Creepshow with Leslie Nielsen. The two revenants that are like waterlogged, just sort of creeping around in the background. He sees their shadows. He's like, "Who's there?" And you know that, that was my favorite part of that movie. The way that they portray it in not showing the reveal. I don't know, you can't tell what the the hotel's motivations were at that point in time, but by revealing itself to Jack in a way that is not completely overt, it just furthers his madness in thinking, or in him thinking, that maybe he's not insane, or maybe he is insane, he doesn't know, because he's seeing things that he can't comprehend, he's hearing things that he can't comprehend, and if they were, if the hotel was that blunt with it, Jack's gonna know. But if they just cautiously keep pawing at him, pawing at him, eating away at his sanity, he's gonna fall more under their control, because they're weakening him, bit by bit. They're just chewing away at his sanity. Like the radio, for example. His father's voice coming over the radio. His, His reaction is that he's going insane. He's not thinking that the hotel is doing this to him. He's thinking part of him is going mad. It might be the need for a drink. It might be something. And again, if, if he just flat out sees the ghost, it's going to break the illusion. He's going to know that something is up. But if they can keep things just just a little bit plausible to where he can try to deny it, he's going to fall more under their spell. I do think, though, that the spirit wanted to be met, though. I think that the fact that he shuts the door and that's the moment it scrambles out of the tub and races as fast as it can to the door means that it was expecting him to come to it. And he didn't. They didn't play into its hand, so now it has to like try to think on its feet really quickly about what to do. And again, I, I just I don't know. I just think that there's something about the way King describes it that just really was much creepier than hedge animals. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, supposed haunted hoses. But I mean, Danny's part 
is creepy too. And it's interesting how when I watched the Kubrick movie again, I didn't realize that he never met the lady, that it was only Jack that had met the lady. Where here, it's Danny who meets the lady and not Jack. That's an interesting turn from the book and the movie. I rewatched it. That actually confused me. Like, uh, yeah. It just, it just sort of happens like so abruptly. And in my mind, I always thought, well, he met the lady first and then Jack met the lady. But here, that didn't happen in the movie. But in the book, it happens in detail. And of course, King describes her as disgustingly as possible. I mean, he vomit <laughs> just reading the description of how decayed she is and how much bloat she has under her and like, ugh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, King is a master at just like writing things in the most disgusting terms possible. <laughs> Without giving away too much since I started to read Dr. Sleep, this character is not done, which is kind of cool. I haven't read Dr. Sleep, but the version of the book I, I took out from the library had the first chapter, or at least it had a, a portion of it to read. So I did read that. And yes, you are and right. That, <laughs> I'm actually, not... I'm currently reading that. Um, I, I'm not too far into it. I've been busy, but no, I, uh, I read up to that point. That was a pretty cool moment right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. And just the fact that there, there is this entity that is tied to the room that makes so much sense, again, from having worked in hotels, because just as we attach, as workers, memories to hotels or to the stories to these rooms, to the, to the individual rooms, this ghost is specifically tied to that room. It's how things kind of function when we look back and we think of, oh god, remember when it happened in that room? It's always right there. And that idea that, I, I love the way that that Dick Halloran portrays it and describes it of pictures in a book they're trying to show you and that's what these ghosts are because you do have people who believe in ghosts who prescribe more to that theory than they do the their lost souls in that things have been imprinted in some you know way that we don't understand but the lives the memories have been imprinted into the building or that area and they just manifest themselves like like on a playback loop and that's how Dick is trying to portray it to Danny. It's just that, unfortunately for Danny, because of his power, it's been able to magnify it and move these spirits out of that. And then Dr. Sleep does a bit more, from what I've read, to describe why these things linger. But, again, at least from looking at The Shining, that whole notion that things imprint themselves on their area, even on this area after death, is creepy in itself, and that the room, it's that room... It contains evil. And it never leaves that room, but it contains it. And then the, the whole idea, too, of Jack with the the scrapbook that he finds, that's the thing that was a tipping point to moving him into another stage of being controlled by the hotel. I don't know if this is a direct reference to anything like that, but the, the knowledge or the idea that knowledge leads to insanity is a big trope that's used in Lovecraft stories, uh, particularly in, in yeah. Cthulhu <laughs> mythos, yes, where yes, the yes. more you know, the yeah. more insane you become. Right. I took a horror literature class in college, and we actually, when we read Lovecraft, one of the Stephen King short stories we read was his homage to Lovecraft. Well, there you go. I have to think that the idea of learning about the hotel as a tipping point to his insanity is kind of a call-out to Cthulhu mythos in the sense that, yeah... Once you've learned about it, it dominates your mind, and you, you've started to become part of it now. Again, not sure if that was an intentional reference. Oh, it's a, it's 100%. You know, uh, not the main villain. So pretty much like the Emperor Palpatine of the Stephen King universe, multiverse, 
is the Crimson King. Um, Darth Vader, so to speak, would be Randall Flagg. And Randall Flagg's like in The Stand. He's in the Dark Tower series. He's across like multiple books. Uh, Eyes of the Dragon. Randall Flagg is literally the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft entity. Um, I've never said this out loud before. Niartholep, I think his name is. <laughs> Narla Hotep. Like, that, like he's no, he's he's literally like he outright says in um, one of the books. That's one of my names. Nyarlotep. <laughs> so uh, he's like the walking man of like, you know, he kind of wherever he goes, he spreads insanity. No, King is a big, big admirer of Lovecraft. And we wouldn't have had King without HP's uh, influence. There's a game that I've been playing on live stream called Bloodborne that ties into Cthulhu Mythos as well, where you acquire Madman's knowledge and it alters the way that you perceive the world and things that happen to you, where suddenly things manifest themselves physically and that's what's happening here to to Jack. The more he knows, the more he can't let it go, and he becomes overwhelmed. And I think it's it's just kind of a, an odd thing with just that... Well, not odd. I think it's a very creepy and effective thing. The fact that just learning about this place, like he has, has become part of his infection. I would, I would agree with that. And also, it's obvious King found the idea of a room that just contains evil, as you were talking about, how, that, how 237 just has a spirit that's contained in that room. It's obvious that that inspired King again to do room 1408. I haven't read the short story, but I've seen the movie with John Cusack, which is basically all about a hotel room. So <laughs> I just watched that last week for the first that time. Nobody can actually <laughs> stay in it. So he did take the idea of room 237 and made a whole short story based around it later. Yeah. I also want to tie this back into, because we haven't really discussed Dick Halloran very much. And mm. I want to point out something that, all right, just kind of a, a social... And I don't want anybody like thinking that we're talking or going to bring the subject into race, but there's always been the concept in television, film, whatnot, in the last couples or several decades of the magical Negro, as it's called. And Stephen King was one of the big <laughs> uh, popularizers yeah, of that concept. He's come out, too, saying that he kind of regrets writing certain characters like Hollerman and another character in the stand like that. Mother Abigail. Yeah, that was her name. Yeah, but I do want to say at the very least that Halloran subverts some of those notions in in a good way in that he, I don't think he comes across so much more as like the magical Negro trope as he comes across as, I think you mentioned it earlier, Doug, as like the surrogate father. The connection that he forms with Danny and the way that his backstory is played out doesn't seem more like they're just imbuing him with magical powers as much as it is world-building and the fact that this Shining exists and there's people who have it. And then not to mention, Dick's rescue attempt completely fucking fails. <laughs> like, like his only role in life was just to get the shit kicked out of him yeah. <laughs> so this kid could escape. Through this version, unlike the, the movie where he, you know... Yeah, basically, just how <laughs> to get out of there. That's really his only function. And then on top of that, subverting the magical Negro trope even further, Dick almost becomes the the same as Jack, and that the hotel tries to get him too at the very end in the work shed. Yeah, he hears the voices in his head, and you know, he's like, "Well, yeah, he he fights it off." Like it's a very brief thing, but it's still there. And the fact that he he too was almost fallible to it. But I do love the scene where he's talking to Danny about things and helping it again, like, like I said, with the magical Negro trope, it tends to be about the idea that uh, some black guy is able to impart this knowledge uh, and like save the day through his like world weary bones of, Oh, I've seen it all. I've been through all this. And 
Let me tell you something, something, kid. Like all that stuff. But here, Green Mile. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but in, See, that, it happens quite often in King. Now, <laughs> but in this case, Dick comes across to me more as somebody who, you know, who sees this kid as very much somebody who reminds him of himself being alone with this power. But Dick has somebody to connect to with his grandmother, who was able to like show him the ropes and teach him, and and let him know that he was not alone in the world. And Danny doesn't have that. And he feels bad for this kid, knowing that, especially hearing the thoughts that are going through his head about the divorce, he's able to pick up on those things, and he's, re- you know, takes time to try to read Jack's, uh, read Danny's father and mother, and there's just something very heartwarming about the fact that he he feels something for Danny because he's able to read what this kid is going through, and he feels bad for him, and, and just knows that this is a good kid who needs some help. I don't know. It's just something about it was very heartwarming, and I think did a did a decent job of not diving too far into that that cliched magical Negro trope that uh, can be is, is so very demeaning to African Americans. And here King manages it a lot better than he would in future novels. Right, I can see that. But your guys' thoughts, uh, Doug? What do you think? Well, one scene I liked in particular is when he's on the airplane coming back and he's got the passenger next to him who seems a little snooty at first, but then later he realizes that she might have a little bit of shining as well. Like she might know what he was up to by the end of the flight. And I like the way that they, that he kind of talks about how a lot of people have variations of shining, that some of them don't really know they have it, but are just really smart at things or better at things. And then he also talks about how like a lot of moms in general will usually just have a little bit of shine after they have their children. It's an interesting concept to think about in general. And I've known friends who have also just talked in general how just having a child changes your outlook on life in general. Like you just look at things in a completely different way. At least he doesn't show up just to get an axe in the back and, or an <laughs> axe in the front thigh. So I mean, good for him. And I did like that that scene you talked about in the shed where they try to get him as well, showing you that the overlook isn't giving up yet, even if it's exploding around them. It's, it's not going down without a fight and it's going to try to take Dick Hollerman with them next. They did a good job, you know, showing how he got up there and just like the really awful snow conditions and making that scary. I mean, in some ways, I think that's something that as all of us who have lived in new England and New York can relate to terrifying snow blizzards. (laughs) And, you know, they're all trapped in the hotel with the terror, but him trying to get there is almost as scary as what they're going through. Just because when there's a storm like that, you are, you're basically surrendering your life to the elements <laughs> and hoping you can make it through, through luck and gumption. We do find out, too, that if there's one thing that Dick hates more than that room, than room 217, it's Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. Which is fair. <laughs> when that song comes on the radio, he's just like, nope. <laughs> It's a glimpse into rock radio back then, though, that Seasons in the Sun could be played on a rock radio station with a straight face, where now if you had a classic rock station, that would never be played on it. And it's so fitting that I read this, I uh, was reading this around the time that Aretha passed away, because there's a yes. passage here that I quoted, and he says, uh, as Dick yep. is driving, he turned on the radio again, and it was Aretha, and Aretha was just fine. He'd share his Hertz Buick with her any day. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's... Dick knows where it's at. He knows where the soul music is. And Aretha at that time was so huge in terms of her popularity and her the respect that she had in the music community for, for being that popular icon. And yeah, Stephen King, he's he's letting his rock uh, and his music credit show here. I mean, Season of the Sun, rag on that. 
Doesn't Creed and Clearwater Revival, Bad Moon Rising get mentioned as well? Yes. In, in the story. And of course, that's, that's a whole song that's about dark, evil stuff is coming. The song itself is almost foreshadowing what's about to you know, befall them all at the Overlook Hotel. Because right after the song plays is when they're like, guess what? Time for a snowstorm. Your thoughts on Dick, Doug? Yeah, he said Doug before, not Dougie Style. Get it right, Doug. Yes, yes. Doug, Dougie was just <laughs> there willing to be jump o- right in. There could be only one. No, but um, I don't know. You guys covered Dick mostly. You know, so I, I agree with all of you on that. One thing I do think, though, is we should just keep readapting The Shining. And in every single adaptation of The Shining, Dick gets hurt by a different melee object. <laughs> That's that's just that we'll get like an anime shining and he gets like attacked by a ninja sword. Just keep it going. Just see how many different like blunt objects can be thrown at him. Rogue mallet, axe, ninja I sword, mean, every time I think, baseball bat. Every time you think of him getting axe in the back, I just always think of the Simpsons. And I just think of Marge <laughs> just thinking, oh, I hope that rug was scotch guarded. <laughs> the spinning. You want to get sued? <laughs> Poor groundskeeper Willie. <laughs> But yeah, again, it's nice to have Halloran fleshing out the whole kind of world here and giving us more of that insight about what The Shining is. And then, speaking of that, let's talk. Let's let's talk for a moment about stable time loops, because that's something that happens here. As we find out that Tony, the imaginary friend that Danny has been experiencing throughout most of the book, is a future version of Danny. Because that's where. King is starting to throw the sci-fi into his supernatural here. The idea that at now at some point in time, Danny would have to be projecting his image back in time to his previous self. And that's a whole nother dimension of not just supernatural, but like I said, it's almost like a, it's more of a science fiction trope of putting that into there. I think it's very daring in a way that he doesn't outright state that Tony is Danny. But he, he uses enough language to where you can decipher it, and where he's discussing that Tony's face was one that was not quite Jack's and not quite Danny's, to where it's like, oh, that's Danny in the future. And I think it's just a really clever way of doing it. This time, Doug, not style. Uh, t- your take on Tony. Got it. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the bits of the both the book and the film that was like, sort of like blurrier i think where like it's definitely uh hard to wrap my head around actually they don't go and explain them like at all in the kubrick version as far as i can remember no in they the don't book, in the book like they, they allude that he's danny in the future i don't know i just thought he's, he's sort of danny's defense mechanism all this like kind of negative like emotion and like everything he's taken from like you know witnessing what his parents were going through and hearing their thoughts just sort of manifesting into a person inside of him would that have been a more effective use of tony than having him be a future version of himself that, that was explicitly confirmed in the novel i don't actually quite remember that that, that he's a future version yeah, it's definitely part of that. Was there as the ABC miniseries? Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. Tony was weird. That was definitely a weird part of the book. Uh, I wasn't really sure how I felt about that explicit. Oh, he's Danny from the future. He's like a, it's like a Days of Future Pastor. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just just, just, just giving give warnings. Yeah, Rogue and uh, and Kitty Pride sent him back in order to be able to stop the Sentinels from from going forward. 
<laughs> that's all. That's all it was. And, and Stephen King was just writing for X Men the entire time, but nobody knew it. <laughs> Dougie, your thoughts on Tony? The movie wasn't very clear about it, and it does seem like a defense mechanism. But in the book, I think it was a pretty interesting reveal. I didn't see it coming, and I think that it is interesting that it's a future version of himself talking to himself. And you were saying that was kind of imbuing him. Maybe that's why Danny is so precocious and kind of speaks ahead of his years too. Maybe because his future self is influencing him at that young of age. You know, that's, that's something a, that I didn't really think about till just now as we're discussing it. I think they even allude in the book that he's like way ahead of his own age, like in terms of his vocabulary and stuff. Yeah, the doctor points it out to Wendy. That definite possibility. What do you think? I kind of, I, I don't want to say I'm bothered by the whole reveal of it because I do think it's interesting, but it, it also layers on maybe a bit more than we needed. Uh, I kind of like the idea that Tony is a manifestation of, like, like what Doug was saying, is a manifestation of everything that Danny has had to endure and has him as a defense mechanism. But in terms of how the reveal is handled, I like the fact that it is not so explicitly stated of Tony saying, I'm you from the future. Instead, they say it's like him looking into, it was almost as if Danny was looking to a mirror and seeing himself ten years later. The way it's worded makes for a more effective reveal, regardless of whether I think it's a good reveal or not, in terms of how healthy it is for the story. It's handled very well in, in terms of how King has written it. They also use the hotel's evil sense of shutting off Danny's access to being able to use his abilities as much as he would like to. And that's why, like, the transmission between him and Dick gets cut off so abruptly. You know, the hotel is able to sense the fact that Danny's you know, far beyond his range of things, and he doesn't have those those things to protect him anymore. So when he's calling out for Tony, and he's going into these deep trances, he's accessing something that is so far beyond comprehension that I guess we do need kind of a bigger reveal for that, and I'm glad that we got one. So maybe in a sense it had to come down to it being that way, and it does factor into the intelligence. Yeah, the, the whole idea of time bending is just another thing that's like, well, do we... Really need that on top of our eldritch abomination of a location and all this other stuff. I, I could go either way on it, but at least it was worded and expressed in a way that I thought was unique and left things a little bit unclear to the to the reader so that they could stumble upon it maybe in a reread and go, oh shit, that's Danny. And I, I, <laughs> I, I prefer when things are done like that as opposed to just like ham fisting it and say, it's Danny, it's Danny, it's Danny. It's better to do it in that subtle way. Right. King gets criticized sometimes for not explaining things enough, but I actually like that. I prefer the, the unknown horror than, you know, something just explicitly in your face. Pennywise, cool character. I think, like, you know, they delve into his backstory a little too much, where, you know, it's like, oh, he was vomited out by the cosmic turtle and you know, all this other <laughs> stuff. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> you have to use the phrase cosmic turtle very sparingly. Otherwise, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that where you say, oh, he was imbued into this world by the world turtle. The what now? Uh, <laughs> it's like, yes, if you read mythology, the idea of a turtle carrying the world on its back is popular imagery in different religions and mythologies. But in the context of reading a horror story, about what people perceive to be a killer clown. What the fuck's a cosmic turtle doing in here? It's... You know what? I just decided I'm going to start dropping acid and I'm going to make a psychedelic rock band called Cosmic Turtle. Like, that's just, that's just like what I'm going to do now. And you know what? Stephen King might actually be in that band. So <laughs> he, I could flat out see him saying, you started a band called Cosmic Turtle. 
I will happily play rhythm guitar for you. And just hops in. <laughs> you know, Stephen King's in a band, actually. I forget what they're called. He has several uh, appearances live with these guys. Oh, yeah, he actually, uh, the Doctor Sleep, the intro to it, is dedicated to Warren Zevon because oh, he yeah. was he worked with Warren um, and wrote with him and was in a band with him, and they were just like, you know, shoot the shit. And he dedicates uh, the opening of Doctor Sleep to him, and it's so heartwarming. It's like, oh, Stephen, I just want to hug you. <laughs> anyway, going back into wrapping things up with the discussion of The Shining here, we, we've hit on a lot of the characters, their motivations, why they are who they are, how they've come to be. But no one did hedge animals. Yeah, had a hot to hedge animals. But I guess what I think really strikes me in terms of going through this and then reflecting back on it is the fact that what we have here is not so much a horror story at times as it is a character study put into a horror story. Because we really are seeing the downfall of a man who is heavily flawed and watching those flaws get exploited over and over and over again until he's no longer a man. And I am very much taken with how well it's paced and constructed to watching it take place. I think King is rather misunderstood at times as being just this popular author and when people become popular, like to the level that King is, their work is often kind of written off as just light fluff. It's just something that's there for popular access, whatever it's there. Everybody knows about it. It can't be that deep. Brush it aside. It is what it is. But there, there is so much depth, especially when you look at it from the angle of alcoholism and how this book is a big kind of reference to the dangers of that and the horrors of it. It, it's so very well constructed. The book at no point in time ever says, this is a book about the dangers of alcohol and what it can do to you and your family. But it's very clear that that's part of why King wrote this. Because he experienced the horrors of it and he wanted to impart it to people in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not even impart it to people, but just to get it out of himself and cleanse himself of it to put it out there because of what it did to him. And I think the depth of that and watching it unfold with Jack, whether he's drinking or not, uh, and most of the time he's not drinking, he's sober for 95% of this novel, but he's still suffering from the effects of it. And I think that goes a long way towards making this allegory or this metaphor towards alcoholism work, is that we're not being beaten over the head with the fact that alcoholism is bad. We're being beaten over the head with the fact that Jack is a devastated man because of it, but we're seeing him become an alcoholic again without taking a single drink. And it's masterful in how it does that in, in imparting its moral. And that's the big takeaway that I, I have coming from this book now. What a wonderful job King did of handling a topic that has devastated the lives of millions of people around the world and continues to devastate people. And he's showing that without explicitly showing it. We just have Jack beat himself over the head with it. Yes. <laughs> with, yeah, with a rope mallet, for that matter. Come and get your medicine. In, uh... <laughs> There's a lot of medicine being handed out in that book. <laughs> sure. so, I'm actually reluctant to call King a horror writer. This is my closing thoughts here. But, like, everyone, you know, says, like, oh, Stephen King, you write spooky stories. And, like, I think, you know, as a writer, I don't think Stephen King just sat down and was like, you know what? I'm going to write, you know, scary stories. Like, I don't think that's him. I just think he's a very prolific writer. And he's done, you know, work across tons of different genres, like, you know, horror being his most popular. He's done fantasy. He's done drama. He's done westerns, you know, 
hard-boiled detective novels, but Stephen King and horror, being in a horrific situation, brings out both the best and the worst in humans. And that's what makes Stephen King's stories tick. It's not about the situation that they're in. It's just about the perseverance through these dark times characters. And that's what really made King, you know, what he is today. Dougie, your thoughts? To compare it to Salem's Lot, you know, that was a story that was ambitious in its sprawl. Just how many characters there were, how many subplots were going on, just how much he was juggling at the same time. But he was at part talking about the death of a town and how there was already corruption in, in this town before Barlow and Straker even showed up. Here, this is an intimate story. This is zeroing in, narrowing down to just three, four characters tops, and we really get to know them. And it's more about their journey. Yet, like Salem's Lot, there is a darkness there before the Overlook Hotel takes over. I think Doug's right. I think he is more interested in what makes humans tick. And horror is just a great avenue for him to explore that. To see how humans and characters would act in certain situations and bring out the best and worst in them. He's a good writer in that he can tell two horror stories that feel completely different from one another and yet still be really great character studies at the end of the day. Even though this one is much more about a certain amount of characters than Salem's Lot was. I think it's kind of revealing that we've talked more about the characters themselves than the story beats. Because the story beats, as interesting as they are, they're not as interesting as the characters who are experiencing them. I mean, we could talk about the ballroom and everything that Jack sees there and the messages that are being given to him by people who were there in the past and the weird fucked up situation with uh, the owner and his uh, bisexual partner dressed up as a dog. I do want to talk about that, though, before we go. Outside of the room, that was the second scariest part of the book, was Danny running into that guy dressed as a dog barking at him. That was terrifying. So just about to <laughs> throw that out there. I forgot about that. But that, that was the other part that I actually thought was genuinely scary. That whole sequence was masterfully done. Masterfully done and masterfully perverted, but in a way that made sense. Like, it wasn't just thrown in there to just see, oh, how perverted could this get? No, we're... It describes the evilness and the excess of some of these people who were just like, I'm so powerful, I can make a man completely submissive into acting like an animal for me. And that's 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 fucked up shit. He thought Fifty Shades of Grey was bad in terms of its BDSM. This guy thinks he's a fucking dog. <laughs> it's so bad. Or but, if you're watching the movie, he's a bear. And there's no context to it whatsoever, either. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre and strange but again these story beats and the these odd happenings are shaped around these characters and when we discuss salem's lot we talked about the characters when we discuss shining we're talking about the characters guess who we're going to be talking about when we review carrie the characters because they're they're so overwhelming in terms of their presence and it's a it's a line i've said before and i will continue to say we love stories, but we fall in love with characters. Whether you fall in love with Jack in terms of you know, actually liking his, pers his personality and, and who he is, or whether you love to hate him, you're going to remember Jack Torrance because of everything he's gone through, his story arc, his flaws, his act of redemption. You're going to remember it. You're going to remember Wendy from this as being a very strong motherly figure who tried to stand up to Jack she, and fucking killed her husband. He stabbed, she, she stabbed him in the back and, and it killed him. The only reason he's alive is because he was reanimated by the, by the, the hotel. 
I, I like the fact, Doug, that you said that King is not so much a horror writer. I think that's 100% correct. He writes characters and then puts them into horrible situations. And when we talk about the movie and the miniseries in the next podcast covering The Shining, that's when we're going to be able to talk more about story beats and how they unfold. Because writing a book often gives you the chance to explore characters more because you have more room to do that. You can talk about their thoughts more because you don't have to subscribe to that rule of show, don't tell. You can tell all you want in the book. In the film, we don't get those that luxury, just like we don't get that in the miniseries. A little bit more because we have more time to work with that. The book really does showcase that more. And it'll be interesting to, to pick apart how the miniseries and film tackle the, the scenario. It'll be very interesting for us to, to visit that. I don't have any more thoughts. I think I've expressed how I feel about this. And, and I would say I strongly recommend this. And like I said at the start of the podcast, if you have not read the book but are familiar with the film, you're in for a treat in reading this as long as you aren't expecting it to be like the film. I mean, if you want to read a novelization of the film, this is actually not it by any means. There's just so much different in terms of its pacing, its structure, and the characters that it it's almost like reading a completely different story. It's a very strongly recommended read. Bear in mind that you're in for a different experience than what Kubrick brought to the screen. I avoided reading the book for a long time because I saw the movie. And like you said, I was never really expecting much out of the book that I haven't already seen in the movie. I've mostly read all the Stephen King books that haven't been adapted in the film yet. I'm trying to change that now. I really recommend The Shining, especially if you're a fan of the film and you just kind of get these two just wildly different perspectives on like how the situation unfolds. And it's just overall very heartbreaking book. Silly at points. It's not perfect. No Stephen King book is perfect, but I 100% recommend The Shining. First, I'm just happy that I remember to talk about the guy dressed as a dog because <laughs> I talked about that, but I think we got distracted by hedge animals that... <laughs> that uh, fell by the wayside briefly, but I just wanted to say I thought that was really one of the creepiest things in the book and really well done. Overall, it was a page turner, just like Salem's Lot. I finished this in a week, which sounds like a lot of time, but really I was reading it on the subway. I was reading it during my breaks at work. I was reading it when I was home before my husband came home. I was basically reading it whenever I had free time and I was enjoying every minute of it. I think it's just a testament to his writing that you just are so engrossed in the story that he's telling that you just don't want to put it down. So if you want a book that you don't, that you're going to be engrossed and not want to put it down, that I would definitely read The Shining and to just, you know, we were talking about how most pop culture has been influenced by the movie and not the book. But one randomly piece of pop culture that was influenced more by the book was Friends. If you've ever seen the episode where Rachel comes in and finds Joey has a copy of The Shining in his freezer and she asks why The Shining's in the freezer and he says he never starts a shining without making sure there's room in the freezer for it. And Rachel says, why? <laughs> she says, why? Like, you think you're more safe if it's in the freezer? And he's, he's like, a little. And then, <laughs> then she says, well, how many times have you read this book? And he's like, oh, I read it all the time. It's a classic. She's like, what's great about the shining? And Joey says, what's not great about the shining is the question you should be asking. So Rachel decides to start reading the book. And there's a scene later in the episode randomly where she's sitting on the couch with a blanket and she's totally engrossed in the book. and has a kitchen utensil and Monica walks in and she just jumps up and screams <laughs> and has the kitchen utensil in her hand. And it just shows that she is now just as engrossed in The Shining as Joey's been. Going back, I, I just need to... The dog guy. Uh, one more thought on this. 
one more thought on this. Uh, and I, I do want your perspective on it, Doug, because obviously nobody's going to have the same experience, whether they're gay, straight, whatnot. But I do want to hear your perspective. Because as you mentioned, you've married, so you're, it's not secret that you're gay or anything. Yeah. Based off of when this was written and the fact this time period and even predating it and, and following it, homosexuality was often used to illustrate perversion in people. And if you had a perverted character, they were often tied to being gay. Like they would, they'd do something, they'd be after guys. It was used terribly as a way of showing how perverted somebody was. But King, being a liberal guy, has never really had a problem with homosexuality or with gays. And I think what he does effectively here is he's not showing this behavior to be aberrant in terms of, like, demeaning gays. He's doing it to show how much power this uh, the, the ownership has in that he's effectively dominating somebody into being his, his like subservient love slave that he doesn't care for. He, he definitely is able to use this very aberrant sexual behavior, but he's not doing it to show like perversion or to be homophobic. He's using it to show just how powerful this presence is and how, how much control and love of control the ownership has. But I do want your take on that, because I think you would agree with me. Far too often in media, homosexuality has been shown as a perversion and to like show just how twisted characters are. Yeah, I mean, well, for years, homosexuality was pretty much just equated with pedophilia. They right. were pretty much the same thing. There was no difference in terms of what the culture saw of that. But from what I've read, you know, reading about homosexuality before, you know, like the 60s and 70s and how people had relationships and whatnot. I mean, it's something people did and some people knew about it, but nobody really talked about it. And even if you were in a gay relationship, you never really said you were gay either. It just, it was a different time. But at the, at the same time, I think what this plot point is showing is that this guy, he's found someone who's rich and powerful and can maybe take care of him, but he's letting this guy kind of abuse him because he probably doesn't have many choices. I mean, he probably, it's not easy for him to probably find a person to be with because they mentioned that the owner's bisexual, but the guy wearing the dog mask is gay and that the owner likes to sleep with a lot of gay people, but only do it once. So he just sleeps with them once and tosses them aside. This guy is obviously so taken with him that he wants more. And it, it, you kind of feel sad for the character because you're, I'm, I'm reading between the lines that this is obviously somebody who probably has never had a lot of love in their life, both from their family and friends because of how he feels and is in the fact that he's gay and he's probably had to struggle and scrap by. So the fact that he's got somebody that's kind of abusing him, but at the same time kind of taking care of him is probably, he thinks that's probably the best he can do, which is really tragic when you think about it, but kind of shows also just the depravity of this guy and what the Overlook Hotel does. And the fact that he's now piece of him is now trapped as a dog for the rest of his life, not even a person, but a dog, like a person dressed as a dog that just barks and, and acts crazy. Like that, that's pretty sad. So I kind of just read it more sad than anything and just, and creepy. But I, yeah, I don't think that he's making a slam against gay people. Though, of course, we've got the one guy at the beginning who talks about the boiler, who's dropping some words here and there. Obviously not supposed to be very likable, but it's not King saying it. It's this guy saying it. It also shows the kind of world that, you know, a lot of homosexuals had to live in is that 
most people thought that way. And even if they didn't say it out loud, that's what they thought. So they couldn't really live their full life out in public. And that's what King is doing with, with things like that, too. Does These people exist. Sadly, you can't avoid them. But King also tends to make clear how ignorant these people are by showing them as not sometimes as bad people or sometimes just merely as uneducated people who are very uncultured. You get a lot of that in, in Salem's Lot. You get some of it here. I, I do appreciate the fact that, for the most part, King tries to be more progressive in the way that he writes characters, whether they be women, uh, minorities, homosexuals. There's more respect given to those different classes than other writers would have given during that time period. And a lot more than fucking H.P. Lovecraft, who was just flat-out fucking racist in a lot oh, of yeah. his depictions. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's like, like basically the base of his horror is the fear of the other, and the other being anyone who's not a white, straight male, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not defending him, but, you know, it's a different time. Whenever you read anything, you have to take it into that account. Even Roald Dahl, with his depiction of the Oompa Loompas in Willy Wonka, he described them as, like, <laughs> ignorant... He described them as ignorant pygmies from Africa. It's like, holy shit! This, that's not something for kids. But anyway, it's The Shining. All of its glory, from uh, from great character arcs about uh, a tr- recovering drunk to a depraved uh, guy who thinks he's a dog in a submissive relationship. You get both ends of it here in The Shining. And if you're a fan of topiary hedge animals, boy, do we have a book for you. <laughs> we sure so- do. One last note is coming off of Carrie and Salem's a lot. I think this is the book that really cements him as the next great American writer at that time. I can see where at this point, everyone, all eyes are on now. And he even knew it too. And I think that's why he starts pushing himself further. He starts getting more ambitious books like The Stand. I definitely look forward to covering more soon. Uh, but I definitely think that this is the moment where Stephen King becomes Stephen King. And actually, we'll, Doug, we'll leave you with the last thoughts on that, with you having read more Stephen King than either of us. How does it sit in the pantheon of, it, of his works? And what do you think we have to look forward to as we continue along with the podcast? Are you doing this like in chronological order? That's going to be the goal here. I mean, we started with Salem's Lot just because it was something that Doug was reading, Dougie was reading, and I thought we should jump in on this and start something here. But... The idea now is to go chronologically because we do know that sometimes King introduces into his stories elements, areas, characters from previous books. But it's also helpful to read chronologically to see a person's writing style develop and how they evolve as a writer. So we don't want to miss out on that by jumping around. Um, A very similar novel is The Dark Half, where it's about a writer who struggles with his darker side. You know, he sort of brings out like all these, you know, negative thoughts and emotions and everything he's built up in his life to create like a pen name to write exclusively because he like so this guy Thaddeus Beaumont he's sort of a vanilla writer of just kind of basic he he wanted to be a great writer a great American writer but he ended up writing more like kind of like paperback style like trash and then he creates another name exclusively to write really really dark and depraved and fucked up like crime novels filled with brutal murders and stuff like that crazy shit happens it's a Stephen King book definitely worth reading after The Shining if you enjoy The Shining it'll be interesting as we go along too because King used his own pen name for a while 
uh, under the name of Richard Bachman. Yes, this book was written after Richard Bachman was outed as Stephen King, and ah. uh, he 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 buried the Richard Bachman name, and then like the book was sort of like his closure on that. So yeah, so people can stay tuned for our spinoff, the uh, Richard Bachman Overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of this. <laughs> and, and don't you think that that won't be the opening theme song from when we started that podcast? <laughs> you guys are going to do Richard Bachman like all in one uh, podcast? You should. It'll be hard to say what we do. I mean, it'd be a fun little spinoff to do. Uh, we have Stay Out of Name, but then we have the Richard Bachman Overdrive. Which, <laughs> now that needs to be the name. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a separate podcast. Yeah, I actually haven't read any of the Bachman books. That's like one. That's like that's like one of the main like blank points in my like Stephen King knowledge. Well, it'll be interesting to dive into those too. But I do want to thank both of you for being here for this episode of Stay Out of Maine, a Stephen King podcast. All right, glad to be here. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Covered The Shining, and stay tuned for the next episode where we dive into the movie, the miniseries, comparing, contrasting, and looking at what they both do well. And what one of them does very, 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 very wrong. If you thought hedge animals were a great discussion point before, just wait till those come back up in the next episode. So, from all of us here at Stay Out of Maine, a Stephen King podcast, thank you once again for listening. As for the I love for- of God, don't pet the animal. <laughs> uh, as a reminder, <laughs> if I can get the words out without thinking about those fucking hedge animals. <laughs> as I thank you again for listening and remind you once again to stay out of Maine.